Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. This is Dr. Stephen Liu from Georgetown University. In this episode of Lung Cancer Considered, we'll discuss the recent IASLC meeting, Targeted Therapies for Lung Cancer, or TTLC 23. This has always been a, a member favorite, a relatively smaller meeting known for its fast pace and its wide breadth of content. Uh, for a lot of US-based ISLAC members, TTLC 20 was the last in-person meeting before the pandemic. The last two iterations of this meeting were virtual, and in February 2023, TTLC went hybrid, reintroducing the live component in Santa Monica. Our guests today are two of the co-chairs of that meeting. First, we have Dr. Charu Agarwal, thoracic medical oncologist at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, and the Leslie M. Heisler, associate professor for lung cancer excellence at the University of Pennsylvania. Charu, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Stephen. What an awesome honor to be here. Thank you for having us. And we're also joined by Dr. Joel Neal, thoracic medical oncologist and associate professor at Stanford University, where he's also the medical director for the Cancer Clinical Trials Office. Joel, thank you for being here. Thank you, Stephen. Pleasure to work with you. So first of all, congratulations to both of you on chairing just a wonderful meeting. Uh, such a joy. Joel, uh, can you summarize the purpose of the TTLC meeting? Absolutely. You know, the, the targeted therapies in lung cancer meeting has long been one of my favorite meetings um, since back in the days when I was a fellow and uh, joined my mentors from Mass General Hospital, such as Tom Lynch and Leisha Sequist at the meeting originally. Um, historically, the meeting was a chance to get all of the thought leaders in lung cancer together to share little snippets about drugs that are in development, um, drugs that we may not have even heard of yet, ones that still have license plate names instead of real names, um, and, and share what the current state is of all of these drugs. Um, it's also a chance for us to get together with industry and interact and figure out how to move the field forward in terms of treatment and invite patients and patient advocates along as well so that we can all move things forward. Um, it was it was really a pleasure to work. This was my first year as a program co-chair, um, but to work with folks like Leisha Sequist, a longstanding mentor of mine, of course, Charu Agarwal, and, uh, and Paul Bunn, who I think created the meeting and probably created the name of the meeting and uh, is, is, is a legend in this field. So just a pleasure to work with my co-chairs and talk about the meeting today. I think that's a, an important point that you highlight, really are an opportunity to interact a little bit with industry on compounds, new molecules, drugs that, that don't have a lot of clinical data yet, but this is really how we find out what's coming up around the bend. And so there's a lot of data to cover, a lot of drugs to talk about. Charu, the format of this meeting has evolved a little bit over time. I think when the three of us started attending this meeting, this was an intense, rapid fire style, but that had to change a little during the virtual meetings. Can you comment a little bit on sort of how this meeting structured and the discussions that the four of you had when planning this meeting? Absolutely. So this is my second year co-chairing the meeting. And the first year was a virtual uh, meeting, as you pointed out, uh, Stephen. TTLC 22 uh, was going to be live, but then um, we rapidly pivoted and changed it to a virtual meeting. I think the overall uh, 
consensus was that while the five-minute talks were great, it was almost like drinking out of a fire hose, right? There were just so many drugs, and it was hard to really condense the information to into one uh, streamlined story for one particular target. And we've seen such explosion of drugs in the lung cancer space that we thought that if we tried to do each and every drug, it would probably take us five days or six days of those five-minute sessions. There's just so many advances. For the virtual meeting, we we intentionally wanted to make it very focused so that it was easier for people to log in listen to 10-minute talks uh, focused on um, broader categories, not just drugs. And really, our our um, direction to the speakers was to try and include as many of the upcoming targets as they can in the, in the talk. So a little bit of science, but also just give us what's on the horizon. The feedback we got from those meetings was that it was really um, well-received, and especially the panel discussions were very well-received, where we could hear about points of view from not just the speakers, but also experts in the field guiding us what the next big drug may be in that particular category. So when we were deciding on the live meeting, as well as the format for this session, we wanted to keep some of that um, back in where we had fewer talks, but more engaged discussions. And I know you'll talk to us about debates, but that is something that we intentionally wanted to include for each and every category of sessions that we had this year. Well, no, I think that, it, that it's good to talk about the different formats. We're always trying to evolve and think of good ways to to sort of give everyone the information they need. That the original format that we had a few years ago, where it was hundreds of these five minute talks, it, it was a lot, and you had to go in with you know a gallon of caffeine and and sort of sit there ready to take a lot of notes. It was very rapid fire. One nice thing about that though is that everyone had a chance to give a little talk, especially the junior faculty, some of the first year attendings, um, and, and and that part was nice. But I think the panels do allow for a little more discussion. Joel, there's pros and cons with all these different formats. Were there any aspects of this meeting that that you thought worked particularly well? Yeah. Um, well, I think first of all, the uh, the the debates were a big hit. So, what we did tried to design every session so that there was an introductory overview talk of a few basic topics. Then there were some talks that went more in depth into particular areas within that, for example, individual molecules, and tried to the best of our knowledge to even suggest individual compounds that were not missed ones, but hope that our experts who are leading these talks could identify those themselves, you know, as opposed to in the old days when we'd say, here's 400 molecules and who's going to give a talk for a couple of minutes about each of them. Um, then we had the panel discussion. We had a generous 30 minutes for questions and answers from the audience, as well as online folk, as well as from the chairs themselves. And that really gave an opportunity for the panelists to uh, shine and highlight their own expertise uh, from clinical trials and their own work that they'd worked in with these compounds. And, and then we tried to have a finale of a debate. We gave only 10 minutes for both sides of the debates and had informal applause. A few people got prizes, such as uh, there was, I, th I believe, two crowns given out as prizes and other things were offered. Um, and these debates, I think, were meant to be on the lighter side and really reflect on the data and let people answer unanswerable questions um, in a fun way. So I, I think 
keeping that interactiveness was really a key in engaging the audience. I feel like the speakers, the panels and the debates all engaged the audience in a way that we hadn't seen even with the same format during COVID and the virtual uh, only meeting. I, I agree. The debates were fun and it is nice to see the lighter side, but even sort of from a learning standpoint, you know, we, we know that we kind of live in the middle and we're, we're never so extreme that this is always the case. This is never the case. Uh, but having someone take that position just as a thought exercise, I think is really, really helpful way to learn. Uh, I think also the, the two of you, well, all, all four of the, the chairs did a good job at including a lot of the junior faculty on those panels to really um, uh, involve them a bit more. And I always thought that this was a pretty special meeting for early career thoracic oncologists. I certainly remember my first TTL meeting, the, the drugs no longer really in development, but I remember it very well. Charo, it seems like there's a lot of intention, a lot of thought went into planning these sessions with junior people in mind. Can you talk a little bit about what TTLC offers to early career oncologists and why uh, it's important to them and why it was important to you as chairs? Absolutely, Stephen. A lot of thought went into ensuring that early career faculty were included and, uh, you know, were made part of the program. Uh, as we realized that we were cutting down on the number of talks, there were other opportunities that came through. For example, we intentionally had um, an early career member as uh, a co-chair of each of the sessions, uh, and they were paired with a senior career or a senior member so that they could really balance the discussion, introduce faculty, have a chance at the podium. We also wanted to make sure that fellows were engaged. Um, we accepted abstracts, not just from fellows, but also earlier early career faculty. And this year, we actually saw a record number of abstract submissions. And the quality of abstracts was just phenomenal. I think um, there were many times when the four of us were actually even deciding who to place in an oral abstract session because they were just all so good. So I think just focusing on abstract submissions, designing the oral abstract session, but also I think, um, you know, designing some special career sessions, uh, career development focused towards early, um, early career as well as fellows, uh, we wanted to just be as inclusive as possible. I, th I believe you even had a, a medical student give an oral presentation, right, Charlie? I know it was amazing, unbelievable. I don't think I could ever get into medical oncology at this point as if I applied. The competition is fierce. No, that that presentation. I remember we were listening to it. And I said, "Oh, we got to target this person for for fellowship. Really make sure we we bring her in." And and someone reminded me that she still has to do residency. Um, and so we're really seeing a lot of a lot of promise for the future. It's great for us to meet these rising stars. Uh, I remember the first time I met Jessica Lynn was uh, when she was a fellow at this meeting, and, and now she's my go-to for any Alec or Ross one questions that, that come up. Uh, you know, it's, it's a social meeting. We enjoy seeing each other at this meeting. The meeting's in February. So for a lot of us, especially on the East Coast, it's a nice chance to visit sunny California in the winter. Uh, of course, this was a little bit of an atypical year for, for California weather, right, Joel? Well, I mean, that was, uh, you know, one of the things that we could reflect on during the meeting about how we all expected to go to Southern California and have sunny weather somewhere between 60 and 70 degrees Fahrenheit. We ended up with gale force winds the first day, uh, rain coming in the next two days, and uh, it allowed for a lot of jokes about moving the meeting into the sauna room, maybe where it would be a little bit warmer for those who come from tropical climates like Indianapolis, where it was 71. 
Um, yeah, in addition, I remember, I think it was on Friday night, it even started raining a little bit inside the meeting hall as the ventilation fans and drains couldn't quite keep up. So, and, and on the day we left, there was a bit of snow in Santa Monica and the beaches were closed due to weather. So unusual, but, uh, but fun and allowed a lot more networking and being close together instead of people venturing out of the hotel. You're right. It did keep, it did keep people in the, in the session. So that was that was good for the meeting, I think. So a lot of insight there. Um, Charu, uh, looking at the program, there was also a session focused on women in thoracic oncology and career development. Can you talk a little bit about that panel? Yeah, so women in thoracic oncology is a, um, is a movement or, you know, is really an attempt to address issues that potentially women face um, in their careers, you know, and how can organizations such as ILCLC bring a group of people together to help address some of those issues. This was actually started by uh, Narges Flores, as well as Debbie Dorshaw at one of the world uh, WCLC meetings a few years ago. And Lisha and I had the honor of continuing this tradition and um, showcasing a women in thoracic oncology session this year. We actually ended up choosing a theme around sponsorship. Uh, you know, a lot of people talk about mentorship. Mentorship is very well known. It's foundational and it's really um, instrumental in helping people um, grow in their careers. But we don't in, in our academic world talk so much about sponsorship. It's more of a business word. It's more of a buzz, buzzword in industry or corporate sectors. So we really wanted to shine some light on how sponsorship can help not just women, but men in careers, especially uh, for women who may be mid-career or, you know, maybe thinking about taking leadership positions. And we had a wonderful panel uh, that discussed pros and cons of, uh, you know, being a sponsor and how you can be a good sponsoree. And we compared it to mentorship, uh, we had, uh, you know, senior people like Dr. Shepard, as well as Dr. Lynch, we had folks from industry, um, you know, talking about how they're sponsoring women from uh, the viewpoint of being in industry and getting more people, more women on panels, as well as uh, leading international trials. It was really well attended. We had, um, you know, one of the ballrooms downstairs, and we ended up um, needing more chairs and more or tables. It was really a fantastic session. It's good to see these efforts ongoing uh, sort of throughout the ISLAC meetings. You know, Joel, looking at the agenda, this was a meeting where there were a lot of people. There's a lot of moving pieces, but it was so organized. Uh, I know that it took a lot of planning. Can you maybe contrast planning an in-person meeting versus a virtual meeting or with this uh, more of a hybrid? Yeah, Stephen, you know, as we as we thought about the format this year, we were hoping that unlike last year, we didn't have to do an emergency transition back to a virtual only format, but wanted to keep both options open, um, both because we understand that it's difficult for folks to travel long distances, that there may be other trainees and people who are busy doing other things. And we wanted to have that archive of all the talks over the long term. And uh, finally, this hotel, we're outgrowing it a little bit, and registration for in-person was actually capped. 
Um, so we unfortunately had to decline in-person registration to a few people that wanted to attend, wanted to make sure that they felt like part of the meeting as possible. So what I would say is we took advantage of all the technology that has been developed to make a virtual meeting successful, um, live streaming, archive of talks, even chats that were available during real time, but focused most of the meeting on the people who were there in the room in person to have all those interactions and discussions, which is just so much more natural in, in an in-person environment than it is in a virtual format with pre-recorded talks. I think that you've gotten a lot better at this. You know, I, while I was there in person, I did log on to the virtual meeting for a few sessions. And I think the platform is maybe the best I've seen. We've really sort of ironed out a lot of wrinkles and, and the, these hybrid presentations I think are very helpful. I have to thank the ISLC and the teams that worked with us to make all that technology work. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. One, well one or two times, some of us in the room couldn't get adequate Wi-Fi, but I think everybody else who wasn't in the room was able to connect to the virtual meeting. Maybe it was so popular that everybody was streaming in the room. Exactly. Um, now, this meeting was, was held in Santa Monica for a while. We called it the Santa Monica meeting, but uh, formally it is targeted therapies in lung cancer. And just very quickly, Charu, for those who missed the announcement, there's going to be a couple changes to, to this meeting in the near future, right? Yeah, and I think this is a good opportunity to make another announcement and um, let all our attendees know that for 2024, we will still be at Santa Monica at the original location. But in 2025, the meeting will be moving to Huntington Beach, um, not too far away from Santa Monica, but it'll be a much better experience as we are growing, as more folks are interested in thoracic oncology, as more drugs are coming into the horizon. I think it'll be a much bigger meeting. Um, and we look forward to being at Huntington Beach. Look forward to that. Uh, yeah, not too far away. Um, so still in California. Um, as you mentioned, as both of you mentioned, that there were a series of debates at this meeting, and there are some controversial topics that we talk about a lot at meetings, but also just amongst ourselves. Um, this is a good tool for learning. It is entertaining. Uh, but I wanted to hear from the two of you on one of the, the more relevant topics for our practice. This was the final debate of the meeting, and it was around the duration of immunotherapy for advanced lung cancer. When we think back to the frontline studies like Keynote 024, we know that uh, the use of a checkpoint inhibitor, in that case, pembrolizumab, went on for two years. But that's not really saying the same as, as saying we know the optimal duration of therapy. So when we talk about how long should we continue first-line immunotherapy for advanced non-small cell lung cancer, Joel, what's your practice with regard to duration? Well, before I answer directly, Stephen, I just want to reflect of you know, how how fortunate are we that the field has advanced so much that we can ask these questions about dose de-escalation. Mm. Um, you know, these are questions that were asked in lymphoma and uh, other curable malignancies, but in lung cancer, I don't think I could have even fathomed that we would be saying, "Oh, can we can we stop treatment for stage four lung cancer? Is that the right question?" And de-escalate therapy. So. It's just amazing the advances that immunotherapy has made over the last 10 years. When we think about this, this is a subgroup of a subgroup, right? Only a subgroup of patients will have a response to immunotherapy, and a subgroup will remain in response for the duration of two years without disease progression or other immune-related side effects. So my, my own practice is after a year or two, I'll start to plant the seed with patients, often move immunotherapy to much less frequent infusions to give people more breaks. 
And around two years, you know, unless there is a reason not to, I'll offer the option of discontinuing. I would say about 50-50 in terms of patients accepting that offer versus just wanting to continue. But allowing that kind of freedom and not seeing a medical oncologist and just doing scans is such a privilege. Indeed. Well said. Um, and so it really seems like you're applying a shared decision-making model there. And I think that's that's a wise way to do it. Char, is your practice similar? My practice is very similar. I will say that uh, we have some data cooking where we've looked at the national experience and how practitioners are really utilizing the two-year cutoff. Are they really stopping immunotherapy? And I'll give you a sneak peek. And the the answer is that not many people are actually stopping immunotherapy at two years and uh, prefer the indefinite duration of immunotherapy. And, you know, I think it, it highlights that both patients and sometimes physicians are reluctant to rock the boat too much. You know, if, if it's working, why change it? In my practice, I actually try 80 to 90% of the time to stop immunotherapy at two years, especially for those patients that have had uh, stable disease or better. You know, somebody's had a significant response. I think no doubt in my mind that I want to stop at two years. I think there are financial incentives to stopping immunotherapy. Uh, and also, I think uh, reducing the risk of IRAEs uh, is definitely something that, you know, crosses my mind when I think about continuing immunotherapy after two years. However, if a patient has had some episodes of progression, for example, if somebody had oligoprogression during their two years of maintenance immunotherapy, and I came in with radiation therapy, or I came in with chemotherapy, and now they're on pemetrexid and uh, pembrolizumab, I may be less reluctant, depending on what their progressive event was and how they're tolerating immunotherapy. But if somebody from the get-go has had a very good response uh, for the majority of my patients, I, I, I do stop. Now, I'll encourage listeners to, to go and uh, onto the virtual platform and listen to uh, doctors Estella Rodriguez and Haas Borgai argue their points. But I also want to be clear to the listeners that there's nothing really magic about that two years. And what we're talking about is people that have had not, you know, didn't have any problems with toxicity. And if there are issues with tolerability that we're very comfortable stopping shy of two years in the face of toxicity. Does that sound right, Chara? That's exactly right. You know, what, one of the other central themes of this meeting, you know, focused on targets really is biomarker testing. Now, Charo, at this meeting, you led a session on, on liquid biopsy. Can you explain to the uh, uninitiated what that means and how liquid biopsy is changing your practice for late stage lung cancer? Absolutely. So I think liquid biopsy has really revolutionized our diagnostic testing practices. All of us know that comprehensive testing for non-small cell lung cancer with a non-squamous histology is essential. And while most of us want to do it, we are often limited by the availability of adequate tissue to be able to perform testing. And with so many drugs and so many targets, we can now you know, really think about 40% of our patients or maybe more who may be candidates for targeted therapy either, either in first line or second line. And I find that now we have tools such as liquid biopsy to help us find those patients to be able to deliver personalized therapy to really 
push this idea of precision medicine. It's basically, as all of us know, it's basically using circulating cell-free or circulating tumor DNA, amplifying it and sequencing it. Um, this has really increased our ability to be able to detect mutations, especially in patients who may have inadequate tissue, and in many cases can accelerate time to treatment. Um, so we led a session where we um, engaged a multidisciplinary group of uh, physicians, myself, a pulmonologist, as well as uh, Dr. Stiles, who's a thoracic surgeon. Um, and from pulmonology, we had Dr. Jeff Thompson, who's at my institution, who's a collaborator. And we really talked about how we can utilize liquid biopsy, not at not just at the time of first medical oncology visit, but also move the front door where we can integrate liquid biopsy at the time of first diagnostic biopsy. We are actually la launching a randomized clinical trial where we will be testing whether this approach of utilizing liquid biopsy at the time of the first diagnostic biopsy, does it actually improve our time to treatment and does it improve our time to molecularly informed treatment? Um, so I look forward to doing that. But I think this is going to be a mainstay for diagnostic testing for us in lung cancer. Yeah, it's such an essential part of our practice. It's hard to believe that this really wasn't around, uh, you know, until relatively recently, um, but it is critical. Joel, you know, your institution's doing a lot to advance the field of liquid biopsy work that you're leading with Heather Wakeley, with Max Dean. Uh, liquid biopsy is also probably going to play a role in early stage lung cancer, correct? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think we've seen liquid biopsy move from stage four metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, uh, looking to find the mutations that are floating around in the blood that are a signal, not only that cancer is there, but what flavor of cancer is present. Um, and as we develop more ultra-sensitive techniques using uh, technology improvements and sequencing and PCR-based assays of specific primers that are unique to and personalized to patients, what we find is by getting rid of all the, the baseline errors that we can get more and more and more sensitive so that there's virtually no sequencing errors and we can find even a single copy of DNA floating around from a tumor that might be hiding somewhere. So, you know, we had uh, Valselmo uh, Agnostu, who's another leader in this field in a different session. And early, during the early stage session, um, Patrick Ford, as well as Max Dean, my close collaborator, all talking about this concept of can we use detection of minimal residual disease, i.e. DNA still floating around from a liquid biopsy? Sometimes I call it molecular residual disease. Can we use that detection to make treatment decisions? Um, should we escalate for patients that we might not normally have given adjuvant therapy to after curative surgery or radiation and give additional therapy? Or for those patients who are on consolidation therapy, say with uh, immunotherapy after surgery or radiation, or, or TKI therapy for EGFR right now, um, can we use that to de-escalate and say, maybe you can stop after six months, a year, if the MRD went away, or maybe continue forever if it still stays there. So I think of these, these early stage detections as really a, a significant predictor of metastatic disease will probably develop and gives us an earlier point to intervene. I mean, it's just a, start, a smarter way to, to deliver the drugs we have. I really like molecular residual disease. I think that's, you don't even have to change the initials. Um, I, I think that's pretty smart. Well, we'll um, talk to the CML community first, get their <laughs> permission. Um, I, I like that a lot and really well said, uh, you know, 
we're, we're making a lot of advances. It's really is a, a powerful new paradigm. We're going to get a lot better at giving drugs where they're needed. And that's really, where we're going to see those wine therapeutic windows. You know, there was a big focus this year in the program that the two of you built on drug resistance and how we can better study, you know, why do these drugs stop working? That way we can design strategies to overcome that or hopefully even prevent it. You know, if we apply this to driver positive lung cancer, let's use EGFR as an example, the TKIs we have work well initially, but we know they don't work forever. And we expect to encounter resistance, tumor growth at some point for most of our patients. Charu, what's your practice when, when that happens? I learned so much at these sessions this year. Um, you know, I think this is uh, really an, uh, an area of unmet clinical need, but so happy to see that there are different strategies, drugs, as well as approaches that are being utilized. I think uh, what is most important is that we must re-biopsy these folks. You know, I think um, not just liquid biopsies, but also getting tissue samples so that we can learn more about the patient to be able to deliver clinical care to, to that particular patient, but also to just generate data to, to help guide development for the next um, line of agents. When uh, resistance occurs in the setting of an EGFR mutation in, in my group of patients, I do exactly that. I will do a liquid biopsy and tissue testing. I look for MET, uh, you know, amplification on tissue usually. I look for resistance mutations. And if nothing is actionable, you know, I'll obviously reach out for a clinical trial first, or I'll go and add in chemotherapy. And I, I, my practice has always been to avoid immunotherapy. And I think uh, based on recent information that has come through recent press releases, that may not be actually the, the bad approach. That is to keep the osimertinib going and to add in a platinum-based chemotherapy doublet. Joel, do you have a, a similar approach at Stanford? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, generally I agree with uh, what Charu said. You know, I think continuing on the platinum doublet, it makes a lot of sense. It's, you know, all of these nuances are really fascinating to talk about and really reflecting and interacting with our peers at the meeting um, with other leaders. You know, I know, I know in addition to the sessions themselves, you know, I really want to highlight this idea of networking and, and why we brought in so many young investigators, people who are junior faculty. Um, you know, it, we can learn from each other. I'll ask them questions. Oftentimes we share patients with each other and can find a private place to just talk face to face instead of sending emails and texts. And, you know, I, I, I always enjoy being able to ask my colleagues, what would you do in these really nuanced situations? So. I agree with the treatment, but I also think I really want to highlight how the meeting brings us together. And we all have that shared background of understanding of knowing what each other really do in clinic all of the time to work hard to fight lung cancer. That's so important, Joe. I mean, you know, when I was a fellow or a resident training, I thought that once you made it to, you know, being an attending to a certain level, you just had it all figured out and you were completely independent and never questioned anything. But in reality, I think all of us have these different text chains, email chains, these people we ask about different things. And it really is this community where we sort of uh, are asking each other what we do. And uh, each of our own unique perspectives, I think, sort of, sort of helps advance the field quite a bit. I think that's a really important part of it. Now, 
Skipping ahead, uh, we talked a lot at this session, uh, you know, about some of the future directions for thoracic oncology. I know that both of you have leadership roles within your thoracic oncology research programs. Uh, at TTLC, we heard a lot about some novel agents, some newer types of treatment. You know, what are some of the things that are still in development that aren't quite in the mainstream that people should really be excited about? Uh, Charlie, let's start with you. Yeah, so I think um, one of the most popular sessions uh, was the session on ADCs this year. You know, I think um, a lot of excitement about that group of drugs, um, you know, targeted chemotherapy. Um, so sort of brings in the flavor of the targeted therapies meeting and takes us back to also earlier days when all we had was chemotherapy. So I think it's a good mix of, of both uh, being able to be targeted, but also use chemotherapy warheads uh, with warheads. So I think um, I would be personally very excited about that group of drugs, but there's also, you know, a lot going on in the immunotherapy and the personalized immunotherapy space that we didn't really talk about a lot at this meeting, you know, right. utilizing TILS, utilizing a newer form of cars, you know, utilizing different TCR-based therapies, I think would be very interesting to see. I look forward to, you know, hearing about those at future TTLC meetings. So cellular therapy, antibody drug conjugates, exciting new platforms. Joel, anything else that caught your eye? Yeah, I think, uh, well, I'm certainly excited about the ADCs. That was one of the sessions that I helped construct. And uh, putting it at the very, very end of the last session was strategic to help everybody stick around. We couldn't have predicted the rainstorm as a comp competing factor to keep everyone off the beach either, though. Um, you know, I, I thought that the HER2 field really has come into its full prime time over the last year. And I wouldn't be surprised if we have to expand that a little bit more as there is a renewed interest, um, not only in novel TKIs that may be a little more specific, but also the antibody drug conjugates, because that's the first ADC that's been approved is the uh, trastuzumab deruxtecan in HER2. So that was a big advance over the last year. And I think some of these other targets, you know, Energy one we're seeing emerging evidence about and don't have any FDA-approved targets yet. And then many of the other ones, we have more and more TKIs in development to overcome acquired resistance that may be more effective in the CNS, in the brain as penetration, and fewer side effects too, which are both a huge advantage for patients. It's quite a task narrowing the field down for this meeting. Uh, you both did an excellent job. I thought those were great sessions. I love the KRAS session, just sort of talking about the heterogeneity and, and how we're excited about the drugs we have, but even more excited about the drugs that we anticipate having in the, the relatively near future. Um, so again, congratulations to both of you and the other two chairs, Leisha Sequist, Paul Bunn, on a wonderful meeting. We're just about out of time, but maybe before we close this episode, I think the audience would love to hear more about the two of you. Uh, Joel, you're currently at Stanford. Can you just tell us a little bit about your, your path to Stanford and, and what led you to focus on thoracic specifically? Yeah, well, my uh, my path to Stanford was a, a very long circuit because I was actually born at Stanford back in the day, grew up in the Bay Area, uh, worked my way to Northwestern in Chicago for MD-PhD in tumor cell biology, then out to the Harvard hospitals for internship fellow residency, um, found some great mentors, uh, both at Dana-Farber and Mass General, who led lung cancer research around the country. And when I, when I saw developments that they had created, such as uh, 
the description of the first responses, EGFR mutant patients, and targeted therapies for them. Um, saw the ALK story unfolding in front of our eyes with the PF00234 1066, now known as crizotinib, um, and you know saw that there was all this untapped potential for really interrogating tumors in a molecular way. I said, "This is what I want to do," you know, and I went to. The Santa Monica meeting as a as a mid-level fellow, having decided I wanted to do thoracic oncology as a career, and met Heather Wakeley, um, now the president of the ISLC, and my close mentor, colleague, partner. And uh, you know, that's the first time we met was at this meeting. And I said, I want to come back and work at Stanford. This is where I'm from, and California is a great place to be when we get rain and when we don't get rain. We need both. So, uh, you know, that's that's how the match was made. And a couple of years later, I started my job. Wow. Um, what a timely uh, episode to ask that question. Joel, fantastic. Charu, you're at the University of Pennsylvania. Can you tell us a little more about why you chose the Mexican College and how you got to where you are? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, Joel and I may be uh, almost the same age, and I think we are almost the same age and graduated and started our first attending jobs at about the same age because crizotinib was just coming on. Uh, we had just uh, heard new data on crizotinib. And really, I think the big news, the you know, when I was in fellowship was Pemetrex and maintenance, right? So that was like, this revolutionary thing that we can maintain patients on immunotherapy, oh, sorry, on chemotherapy, and can actually make a meaningful difference in survival. And I thought to myself that this is one of the places in oncology or one of the, you know, subsets in oncology where there is so much potential uh, to make a difference. Um, it, it just excited me. I really liked the kind of patients I met in clinic who had lung cancer, very distinct population from any other population I had seen, you know, you compare it to breast cancer or heme malignancies. Um, I found that lung cancer patients were my people and I really enjoyed my time in the lung cancer clinic. And I thought that there was such a huge opportunity. And, you know, look at us now, we don't have enough, <laughs> enough time to cover all the topics um, in lung cancer, and we have to condense talks and, you know, condense our sessions, because there's just so much going on and such an exciting time. Yeah, I mean, I think you both have said it very well, we're, we're lucky to have been witness to these dramatic shifts, not just in the drugs we have available, but really our understanding of, of this disease. And I think the two of you in particular, have done a lot to get us there. So I'm, I'm glad that you made your way to thoracic. I'm glad we have you here. Um, and, you know, I'm uh, disappointed that we're out of time. and can't really talk a bit more on that. So um, I want to thank both of you for a wonderful meeting, for all the work you've done, and again, for joining us today. So Charu, um, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. I think this was a very interesting episode recapping TTLC. Thank you for having us. And Joel, thank you as well for, for all your insights and, and for everything. Thank you, Stephen. And one last plug, if you're interested in being in person in the meeting next year, we'll still be constrained for space. So uh, register early if you can. Good tip. Uh, and thanks to everyone there for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official IASLC podcast. We hope that you'll tune in regularly to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 